Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Michael Charlton, a pathologist currently at Intermountain Medical Center. Uh, Mayo Clinic, where I was for 20 years, became professor of medicine and director of hepatology there before moving to, uh, to Salt Lake City. But when I graduated medical school, it was uh, 1986, and I, I was fascinated by liver disease because we were so bad at it. You know, we had lots of patients with liver disease, liver failure. There was non-A, non-B hepatitis, which now we know was hepatitis C. Do you remember what we were treating with back then for, for non-A and non-B? It was prednisone. We were giving patients prednisone, and our professor was saying how wonderful the prednisone was. Of course, it didn't really cure anyone, but it made the transaminases a bit better. At the same time, we had Jay Hufnagel was at NIH doing the first interferon studies. He had a 25% cure rate with his first New England Journal interferon study. Hep B, we had no effective therapy for Hep B, and the retransplant was sort of still exciting because the success rates weren't very good. Now we have cures for Hep C uh, with just one pill once a day, in some instances for you know, eight, 12 weeks. Uh, I was thinking the whole of medicine, we had this discussion at Medical Grand Rounds, no one can think of another disease like it in the, in the whole of medicine, certainly not in oncology where we get these you know, breakthrough, breakthroughs you know, with things like Herceptin or some of the pancreas cancer drugs where you extend life by six minutes. Uh, you know, this is a, it's a totally different thing, it's sort of a fun field uh, to be in. These are the uh, learning objectives for uh, the two presentations that I have today. Uh, we're able to choose optimal antiviral therapy for difficult to treat patients. And also uh, for this first presentation to evaluate and manage routine aspects of medical care related to liver disease in patients with chronic hep C, uh, including determining severity of liver disease and screening for uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. There's a national shortage of uh, hepatologists. There's a fraction of what we need. And, and the reason is you have to do your GI and hepatology training. They have to do another year of hepatology training. They throw in an extra set of boards to take uh, as well. And generally, in reward for this, you actually get much lower level of compensation than if you hadn't done any of that. It's sort of like ID, I think. It's the yeah, same general all your, principle. All your patients are really sick. Yeah, yeah, really pretty much sick. it. <laughs> So this is what we're going to cover in this first talk, which is really what we would, uh, what I would like for anyone caring for people with uh, liver disease, and that's most patients with liver disease are not cared for by hepatologists. I don't know the exact proportion, but it's a small fraction. Uh, what is the natural history uh, and prognosis uh, of cirrhosis? How do you diagnose cirrhosis? Managing common complications and other issues that are really important, some of which should become CMS uh, quality metrics that affect our reimbursement. So immunization, medications, uh, et cetera. So if you look at the natural history for, for hep C, uh, the great majority of patients probably don't have cirrhosis, although the, the proportion is increasing. All the action in terms of consequences occur once you get cirrhosis. The complications of liver disease, whether it's uh, ascites, uh, variceal bleeding, encephalopathy, you have to have portal hypertension first. All of the venous return from the GI tract, from the tongue all the way down to the anus, has to go through the portal vein and make its way uh, through the liver. And then you throw in blood flow from the spleen uh, as well. All of the complications of liver disease except for the extrahepatic ones, uh, only occur in patients with uh, cirrhosis. And those complications, let's try to move this forward a little bit, there we go, you include variceal hemorrhage, ascites, encephalopathy, jaundice, and even liver cancer is proportional to portal hypertension. You can fairly accurately predict the likelihood of developing hepatocellular carcinoma based on the baseline uh, portal pressure. 
Now this looks at, this is a study from New York with thousands of patients, I forget how many, it's tens of thousands of patients. And it looked at patients who neither had hep C or HIV, people who just had hep C, and then people who had hep C and HIV co-infection. And it looked at three, you know, a couple of things. One of them was the average life expectancy. If you had neither hep C nor HIV, you lived in New York City, life expectancy 78 years, as you would expect statistically, about a quarter of people died prematurely. If you just had hep C mono-infection, your life expectancy is 60 years old in the city of New York, and about two-thirds of you will die, from, uh, will die prematurely. If you're co-infected, almost everyone dies prematurely. 94% of people in this study died prematurely, and the average life expectancy, 52 years. So huge impact, or certainly in association at least, with mortality. These are some of the uh, extrahepatic uh, manifestations, mixed cryoglobulinemia. About 80 to 90% of it occurs in the setting of chronic hepatitis C infection. If you treat hep C effectively, about half the patients will lose their uh, 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 cryoglobulinemia. Uh, it can cause kidney failure. I have patients who are dialysis dependent when they relapse and you treat their hep C uh, and they, they get dialysis free. Uh, porphyria cutanea tarda, this blistering uh, skin lesion was commonly seen on the hands of patients as a hepatitis C-associated phenomena. Lymphoma is now reasonably well accepted to be, at least in part, an association of hepatitis C. Type 2 diabetes mellitus, about a fourfold increase uh, likelihood and risk. Uh, Lichen planus, which we see in the tongue, the patient up here, vitiligo. And I think I've seen in my career almost every type of neurological complication, including quadriplegia from severe Guillain-Barre syndrome that reverses with uh, treatment of hepatitis C. So these are just some of the extrahepatic manifestations, and these can occur regardless of uh, stage of disease. Now, Mike Sark showed some of this before, but one of the uh, interesting things about treating hepatitis C is that you really transform. It's one thing to say if a patient has cirrhosis, which is where many patients are when they get treated now. A lot of the therapy has been prioritized, so to speak, or limited to patients with stage three, which is bridging fibrosis, and or stage four, which is cirrhotic stage disease. The great majority of treated patients fall into those categories. And you might argue, well, what's the point of that? Why not treat much earlier and you prevent these things? Even when you treat patients uh, uh, later with disease, people who have cirrhosis, you see this dramatic decline in the frequency. In this case, it's all-cause mortality. So you have this about 70% reduction in mortality for people followed up for up to 10 years uh, by treating the hepatitis C. This looks at liver-related mortality and transplantation and liver cancer. Again, about a 90% decline in the likelihood of getting liver cancer. Some studies go down to about 70%, but no one thinks less than about a 70% decline in liver cancer. And liver-related mortality, uh, even more uh, dramatic. At least this was with uh, therapies before we had the direct-acting antivirals. And these are data that are currently under review. It's a paper we're submitting to Gastro. These are national data. So these are the frequency of liver transplantation for the most common four indications. Hepatitis C has, for years, certainly as long as I can remember, been the most common indication. About 35, 40% of liver transplant is for hep C. And this goes back to 2005, uh, finishes at the end of 2015. Sofospivir became available here. Uh, commercially, there were a handful of patients who could get it through uh, drug trials, but in the, in the hundreds at most at that point. Uh, this is uh, NASH uh, cirrhosis here, in this line here, and this is alcohol. Alcohol is probably now the most common indication for liver transplantation in the United States. Hepatitis C, in just the two to three years since we've had the direct-acting antivirals, has fallen by 27%. And this is by treating patients with cirrhosis. So theoretically, we knew it was possible that people might improve. And now we're seeing, based on 
more than a quarter decline in transplant for hep C, then it's a real thing. We're, we're losing uh, the need for liver transplantation for hep C. This is really important. About 20% uh, of patients who are listed for liver transplantation don't survive to the liver transplant. They die of complications of the liver disease while they're on the wait list. So by treating someone with child B C cirrhosis, you potentially save two lives, the, the life of your patient and the life of someone with a disease, something other than hepatitis C, who then has access to that, that organ. Here in uh, Region 7 uh, of uh, the United Network for Organ Sharing in, in Chicago, uh, you have some of the most uh, uh, shortage, the most acute shortage of livers uh, in the whole country. Only California and states surrounding California in Region 5 have a greater shortage. So the impact of this hopefully will be felt really acutely uh, here in Chicago. And you have, I think, four programs just in the city. This is a list of uh, reasons why patients were not treated for hepatitis C in the interferon days. And these are still, but the good thing about this study, which was uh, with thousands of patients, again, from Kaiser Permanente, 51,000 patients, it shows you all the comorbidities that they have. They have uh, uh, autoimmune disease. They have uh, mental health issues. All these things are still there. So most of our patients don't just have hep C. They struggle with and have a burden of all of these other things. Cardiovascular disease is more, more common. The most common reason to die if you have uh, hepatitis C is actually cardiovascular uh, disease. Hepatitis C is also strongly associated with uh, smoking, so lung disease more common in, in patients with hep C too. Now the cohort of patients with hep C is age. You know, so we had the, you know, the baby boom uh, and everything went on in the 60s with the increased prevalence. About 70% of hep C uh, in the United States is in the baby boom population, which is patients born between 1945 and 65. That's who the CDC says we should screen right now, so that's 45 to 65. We're here in 2015, uh, 2016, beg your pardon, uh, and probably cirrhosis is the most common histological phenotype uh, for hepatitis C. So cirrhosis went from being relatively unusual to now probably being the most common histology among patients uh, who have hepatitis C. Liver cancer is the most important complication of uh, hepatitis C uh, cirrhosis. All of the uh, medical legal cases that I've been asked to participate in. I've never been sued, luckily, but all the ones that I've been uh, involved in or been asked to be involved in uh, have all been missed hepatocellular carcinoma or it presents late or it wasn't screened for. And the reason is this. So firstly, it's a 2% per year risk, and it's a cumulative risk. If you have cirrhosis for 10 years with hepatitis C, it's about a 20% risk of having hepatocellular carcinoma. So every year you have cirrhosis from hep C, another 2% risk of getting uh, liver cancer. With 15,000 patients uh, studied the surveillance, so if you did the six monthly screening with whatever method you had, most commonly uh, ultrasound, but you could also use CT or MR, you improved uh, the stage of tumor detection. Currently in the United States, which gets the best outcomes in the world for liver cancer, if you have 100 people diagnosed or in clinic with hepatocellular carcinoma, how many do you think are alive in five years? Just a guess. There's no consequence for getting it wrong, just a guess. About 15% right now is terrible. It's nearly as bad as hepatocellular carcinoma. And the reason is most patients are not screened and presenting with these earlier stages of resectable, curable, transplantable uh, disease. So the cure rates go up by about twofold if you have screening, and you get much uh, better survival uh, figures with, with screening. And that's why this is such a popular thing for lawyers, is that it's easy to prove harm done in, in a missed hepatocellular carcinoma. So once you have cirrhosis or suspicion of cirrhosis. Most important thing is to plug in the uh, six monthly ultrasounds. 
So moving on to diagnosing uh, cirrhosis. So knowing that you have to screen for hepatocellular carcinoma if you have cirrhosis is very important to try and be able to figure out uh, if the patient has it or if they don't. These are the things that are available. Liver biopsy, of course, is available. The, the average cost of liver biopsy uh, at uh, Mayo Clinic was about 5,000. At Intermountain, it's a bit less. It's around 3,500. Uh, but it's an expensive study. It's invasive. Patients hate it, of course. Uh, there are other indices. Uh, so uh, uh, things like uh, APRI, which is the uh, spartate transaminase to platelet ratio index. FIB4 is dying. It's sort of a uh, it's just not as accurate as, uh, say, the APRI, for example. These are commercial tests. I really don't like them. I had dinner with Thierry Poignard, who invented uh, Fibershore. He's a, he's a Frenchman. They have around 500,000 of these were ordered before the direct-acting antivirals became available in the whole history of that test. Now it's well over uh, a million. He gets about $100 per test that's, uh, that this done. So he's a very happy man uh, these days. But you almost have to give your credit card number to order this test. It's, it's sort of it's a nuisance. Uh, but it's, it's fairly good at uh, the extremes. If you have cirrhosis, it's not bad. And if you, if you have almost no important liver disease, it's not bad identifying those patients. Transient elastography and MRE, magnetic resonance, elastography. We're going to come back to those uh, in just a moment. So a quick question, uh, not a difficult one. Uh, is, liver, is liver biopsy essential for the diagnosis uh, of cirrhosis? Yes or no? Oh, pick your phone. And you know, no is the, uh, the correct answer, of course. And the reason is it's partly here. So this is uh, a non-cirrhotic liver. It has this nice smooth uh, liver edge, which you'll pick up on ultrasound. And also as ultrasound bounces through, which is by far the most common uh, cross-sectional imaging tool, uh, the liver is a bit brighter. It's a bit more echo-dense if you have uh, fibrosis. Now uh, you can sort of see the nodules here. It might be surface to the liver. Then you get all the changes of portal hypertension, maybe with a big spleen, maybe some intra-abdominal varices or collaterals. Lots of things you can see uh, on ultrasound if you have uh, cirrhosis. It is a histological diagnosis, but you can diagnose it also uh, with other methods, including uh, the clinical uh, findings. Somebody with a history of a complication of portal hypertension almost always has uh, cirrhosis. Lab features, uh, particularly thrombocytopenia. If you're seeing somebody with liver disease and they have thrombocytopenia, it's almost always a portal hypertension with splenomegaly. The splenic vein uh, drains into the uh, portal vein and through the liver. The number of patients who get referred to hematology would plate the counts of 30,000, 25,000. It's always a negative workup. Sometimes involves bone marrow biopsies. You can almost always skip it. And somebody with liver disease and a, and a splenomegaly, uh, really no reason to send them to hematology. So this is, I think, a good algorithm. This is available in the slides it's, uh, that you can uh, download. And this is what's also used by the American Gastroenterology Association. So if you have chronic liver disease in any history of variceal hemorrhage, uh, encephalopathy, uh, ascites, those patients have cirrhosis. There's no reason even to think about the biopsy, unless you're worried about the etiology. Maybe think it's a different kinds of liver disease, like autoimmune liver disease, where you might give prednisone. That would be a reason to do a, a liver biopsy. But almost everyone with these complications, if they have them, liver biopsy is not necessary. 
If you have physical findings, splenomegaly, uh, spider angiomas, uh, for, uh, for example, those are pretty good for uh, cirrhosis. Enlarged left lobe, pretty hard to really see on physical exam. And I mentioned thrombocytopenia, a low albumin, uh, 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 prolonged prothrombin time. Those things would also suggest cirrhosis. Again, liver biopsy, not needed. And then these radiographic findings, so the small uh, nodular liver, the intra-abdominal collaterals, ascites, et cetera. And we're going to come to MRE and transient elastography. Uh, next. But if you have none of those things, uh, a liver biopsy may be uh, indicated. Maybe. The reason why maybe is there are these other tests now. This is a transient elastography, the serum markers mentioned over here, the fiber test, the ELF panel, the fibrometer, uh, APRI. These are the, uh, the most popular tests. And you get these readouts of a number, and it tells you what the probability is that your patient has uh, cirrhosis or not. I don't think that any of those, and none of the major medical societies, not AASLD, the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, uh, the European Association, no one thinks that these tests on their own are enough to stage uh, liver disease. Transient elastography, this is one of the machines here. There's only one uh, that's approved in the United States. It's made by Ecosense, uh, which is, again is a, is a French company. Uh, it's not a bad test. Uh, with transient elastography, you bounce ultrasound waves through the liver. It has about a 2.5 centimeters of non-interpretable space between the skin uh, and the surface uh, of the liver. Now, this is an issue if you have an obese patient. So if you have enough uh, adipose tissue, you're soon uh, already into your uh, uh, area where you're looking to actually look at uh, the speed of the waves uh, through the liver. And it's the speed with which the ultrasound waves move through uh, that determines the, the liver stiffness. The actual region of interest is about one cubic centimeter uh, in the liver. So you get a relatively small portion of the liver that's analyzed with transient uh, elastography. They have a new probe called the XL probe, which is better at compressing adipose tissue and has made it uh, better in patients who have BMIs uh, above 30. But generally speaking, if you have particularly large patient BMI substantially above 30, it's probably not the test for you, but for thinner patients, uh, this is a, a perfectly good test. MRE is a different thing. This was invented by a Canadian, Dick Eamon, uh, at uh, Mayo Clinic, and he had uh, noticed that MR waves, or physical waves, uh, create a change in the MR appearance of tissue as the physical wave uh, moves through. So if I push this, this podium, it moves immediately the other side because it's stiff. Okay, the, the, the wave moves forward immediately. If you have something soft, if this was you know, say a, a water bed or something like that, it would take a little while for that wave to move through to the other side. So the speed that a physical force wave moves through is proportional to uh, the stiffness. So you get a, a drum, which is held across the, or bladder really, held across the patient's uh, liver, strapped on with a Velcro strap. It beats at uh, 60 uh, beats per second. It's not uncomfortable uh, in any way. I've never had a patient had to not do this for claustrophobia or anything like that. The MR magnets are standard Siemens and GE magnets. You don't have to buy a special MR machine to do MR elastography. The adaptation for this, the hardware and the software, is about $35,000, $40,000. So if you have a radiology department that doesn't have it yet, uh, and you have lots of liver patients, maybe something that you could speak to them about at least looking at. And these waves are moved in and out of phase by 180 degrees, I said 60 times a second. And you can see the waves, as they move through the liver, they're pseudo-colorized. Okay? Um, software will then pick out a region of interest that's about 85% of the liver is considered with uh, MRE. 
So this deliver here, it'll pick up about 85% of this area and convert the speed uh, into an average stiffness for any particular geographic or anatomic area within the liver. And these are the first 70-something uh, patients that had liver biopsy as well as MRE performed within two days of each other. Now this number is well over 1,000, but these are the first 70 patients that had this. And the important thing is you have less than three kilopascals you have nothing going on in the liver. Most patients you order this test in have less than three kilopascals. This is a great test for saying, I don't have to worry about stress. I really don't have to worry about almost anything. There's nothing important going on with less than three kilopascals. For transient elastography, the ultrasound device, that number is seven. Why the scale is different, I don't fully understand because they're both measuring liver stiffness, but seven for transient elastography is that I'm comfortable number. And for MRE, it's three. And once you get above you know, 4.5, most of those patients will have cirrhosis. Uh, at uh, uh, Intermountain, where I work with 24 hospitals, we have our own insurer called Select Health. We work with many other insurers, too. They will now accept transient elastography, the ultrasound-based uh, device with a number above uh, 12. And they'll accept an MRE above 4.5 as being indicative of stage 3 and 4 disease in the absence of biopsies. They realize it saves money, expense, uh, et cetera. So there's a shift in payers towards accepting these tests. The cost for MRE, uh, obviously it varies with center to center. I know that Northwestern University has one here. University of Chicago is obtaining one. Uh, the cost is around $2,200 for MRE. The cost for transient elastography, the ultrasound machine, it's about $500 or less. That's the charge rate is $500. What you get reimbursed is going to be uh, obviously considerably less than that. Personally, I've grown to really like the transient elastography because it's right there in clinic. You know, so a patient can come in and you want to see, is there somebody who I can write a prescription for whatever I'm going to use? And you get the, uh, the output for the liver stiffness. And if it's above a certain threshold, you can start work on the prior auth papers uh, for, that, you know, for that patient. So you do it right there. MRE, of course, is not an office-based device. You're going to send your patient off to radiology, get it back the next day kind of thing. And it's a, it's a different test. No, that's a good question. You know, I think it, it's, its success is driven by that. Its original derivation, when Dick Eumann invented this back in the 90s, this wasn't an issue. It was just his observation. And now he's using it for brain MRE to look for Alzheimer's. The brain stiffens with that, for breast tissue as well. But it, the fiber short, the number of tests are yeah. phenomenal. Oh, yeah, exactly. No question. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. That's a good point. You know, when, when I spoke with, uh, I left Mayo Clinic three years ago, and I was speaking with uh, Dick Eman and some of the pathologists at a conference we were all at. The number of liver biopsies performed at Mayo Clinic has fallen by 75%. So it, it's part of it is this uh, assessment for prior auths for, for this kind of thing. But also, it's a preferred test. We've had patients travel from California when, when it wasn't as widely available to get their MRE just to avoid the, the liver bias. Now you can have the transient elastography too. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an excellent point. So for MRE, uh, eating has no impact. It's been studied, so you can eat, uh, you can have a fatty liver, it doesn't have an impact. Transient elastography is affected by eating, so if you do want to get this, this is off the record, despite this being recorded. Can you turn the recorders off for just a minute? So you're absolutely right. If, if you eat, uh, uh, you'll increase it. And if you have fatty liver too, so if you have a fatty meal, uh, you can absolutely increase your 
transient elastography to the source. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's, uh, it's one of the differences. Other things that can falsely elevate uh, liver stiffness for, say, MRE and for transient elastography include uh, iron uh, deposition uh, in the liver and liver congestion. So if you have somebody with heart failure for any reason, even if it's acute, you get an artificial increase in liver stiffness. It's not related to fibrosis. Now, this was the first study. Uh, now, nobody really believed it, so it was uh, conducted in multiple other countries, multiple other sites. Uh, this is just some of the other papers trying to confirm it. And all of the graphics look pretty much the same. They all show that the liver stiffness less than three kilopascals essentially excludes disease, and if more than four or so uh, is where you're going to see cirrhosis. What was missing initially was does it predict outcomes? And this was a study by Sumit Asrani, one of our fellows who went down to Baylor in Texas, and he looked at a collection of patients and he combines liver stiffness with MRE with MELD score, which is a combination of creatinine, bilirubin, and prothrombin time. And if your MELD score was less than 10 and he had low liver stiffness, no one really got sick with decompensation. And the more liver stiffness you had with a higher MELD score, up to two-thirds of people would decompensate. So it not just has predictivity for what you would see on the biopsy if you got it, it also tells you how well or poorly your patient is likely to do uh, down the road. Interestingly, uh, FDA now has been accepting for phase two studies for drugs for non-alcoholic state of hepatitis. They're accepting uh, these non-invasive measures as an outcome to guide the phase threes. For phase three, we may still end up needing biopsies for these things, uh, but increasingly, these are biopsy-free studies thanks to uh, these recent developments. There's a question which a patient will often ask, or probably, is MRE better or worse than the, the ultrasound-based transient elastography? That was studied uh, formally here, uh, published at the most recent ASLD, or American Association for the Study of Liver Disease. And this, there are different ways of saying it. So ARFI is essentially just the ultrasound-based uh, measure. Uh, and ARFI was not as good as MRE. So MRE is the superior test, there's no question. But the uh, transient elastography, the ultrasound-based, is good enough. Uh, and I think if, if you look at patients with greater than uh, stage 2 fibrosis score, they're not distinguishable. They perform similarly. This was only an overall uh, difference between the studies. If you add one of those commercial tests or non-commercial tests, like the uh, AST to platelet ratio index, uh, or the fibro uh, or any of those things, to the transient elastography, you have a negative predictive value, so you can exclude advanced disease by 83% and a positive predictive value of nearly 90% as well. So combining these two is actually a pretty nice way to, uh, to go. And when you do these two together, I think you're just as good as MRE. So less than three kilopascals, this is what we do. Uh, you're fine, we just leave those patients alone, nothing bad going on. Somewhere in between, it's really case by case with those other factors that we talked about, whether you'll need uh, a biopsy. And I would encourage people reviewing uh, uh, prior authorizations for patients to really adopt these tests uh, more broadly. It's, it's a shame to have to make a patient go through a liver biopsy to get access to the hepatitis C therapy. I think it's really an uh, older approach to medicine. So what's the natural history uh, of cirrhosis? Well, it primarily comes down to compensation or not being compensated. So any manifestation of portal hypertension, by definition, counts as decompensation, so ascites, encephalopathy, GI bleeding, et cetera. So of these things, which is the most common uh, cause of death for somebody with uh, cirrhosis? So variceal uh, bleeding, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, 
hepatic encephalopathy or cardiovascular disease. So under patients with cirrhosis, what will be the most common cause of death ever for those hundred or so patients? Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. And you're exactly right. So cardiovascular disease is by far the most common cause of uh, death. Even among people with fatty liver disease, there's 100 million people in the country with fatty liver disease right now. Uh, it's about a three-fold increase compared to, say, uh, liver disease as a cause of death. So cardiovascular disease is important. We're going to come back to why that's an important thing to bear in mind. And the thing about hep C now is this event diagram where you have Patients with hep C, many of those also have fatty liver disease as well. It's just such a common thing. So a general approach to patients who, uh, you've done these tests, you did your transit elastography, you've done your history, your physical, et cetera, and you've decided that they have cirrhosis, and you're usually pretty confident to that. These are the things you have to do. So you've done your diagnosis. Everyone should have, these are multi-society uh, guidelines, so American College of Gastroenterology, the American Gastroenterology Association, ASC, all would agree with these. So large varices, it's a beta blocker, we typically like the non-selective beta blockers, so nadolol, uh, propranolol, uh, those are good choices. Uh, and they're also almost free, and then repeat it uh, in, two, in one to two years if the patient had just small varices, no varices, uh, two to three years. Screen for liver cancer every Six months, yeah. If you go a bit longer, I think no one's going to get sued for letting it go 12 months, and often patients don't turn up. And we, we have, uh, usually it's a two attempt to contact patient. It seems to be a standard of care, so if they don't turn up, or there is some sort of uh, burden on us to uh, try and contact the patient at least uh, twice more. And then stopping alcohol vaccinations and some lifestyle changes that we're going to uh, review now. So this is uh, one of the most remarkable things uh, in medicine, I would say, right now, is coffee. Uh, anyone, how many had a cup of coffee this morning? Uh, more than one? Yeah. So I had three. I had three. I used to, I, until these studies came out, I was not a coffee drinker. So this was Journal of the American Medical Association. There are more studies endorsing coffee as uh, a liver beneficial uh, chemical than you can shake a stick at now. This was an important one, though, because it looked at the relative risk of cirrhosis uh, uh, based on uh, coffee consumption. So. If you uh, consumed, uh, I beg your pardon, this is uh, our risk of cirrhosis. This is, not, this is not coffee yet. If you smoke, you increase the risk of cirrhosis by threefold. And if you consume more than three drinks per day, 21 fold increase in risk. BMI, uh, if it's above 30, two fold risk. And this is 125,000 patients. This is a British study uh, looking at people who had neither a high BMI nor consumes more than the World Health Organization safe limit for alcohol, which is two drinks uh, for a woman and three for a man per day. That's a really high, comfortable limit. I think you're, you're unlucky to, to get above that. Uh, but if you have just a BMI above 30, about a 30% increased risk of liver-related death. If you had alcohol but a normal BMI, about a four-fold increase. But if you add them, instead of getting a total of four, you had a tenfold increase. So these are synergistic things. So counseling your patients about being moderate with alcohol consumption, trying to maintain a healthy BMI is important, and now coffee. So drinking, uh, not that much, but uh, two or three cups of coffee per day decreased the risk of cirrhosis. And this was with, again, 125,000 patients. 
by 80%. So you had about uh, a quarter of the risk of getting cirrhosis, a fifth of the risk of getting cirrhosis if you drank coffee on a regular basis after adjusting for everything else. And even for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it was about a 30% uh, decline uh, in risk. Now the, of all the things that uh, walk or fly through the earth, all the funguses, bacteria, viruses, mammals, etc. The only thing that can tolerate coffee are human beings. There's no other animal can tolerate it. It's actually it's a toxic chemical. That's why the beans are red, to tell animals uh, not to eat it. But somehow we've evolved maybe to be vigilant, to be able to do the things that we need to do. The only animal evolved, well not just animal, but any sort of living thing to be able to tolerate coffee uh, is humans. If you heat caffeine, you get these chemicals called tregenolines, and these are slightly less abundant than, than caffeine. They're good for B, uh, B3, but when you heat them, you get these things called polyphenols. And polyphenols, it turns out, are the active chemical component of coffee that's hepatoprotective. It defats the liver. It protects against weight gain. Lots of good uh, effects. Now, this is a study in rats where they gave rats uh, liver toxic uh, diet, high cholesterol, high fat, high fructose diet, and the animals were randomly assigned by placebo to get a gavage of coffee polyphenols versus a placebo. This is the, the control group. This is the high fat diet without the coffee polyphenols. The red is essentially fat in the liver. The animals that had the coffee polyphenols had a defatted uh, liver. This is their weight gain over time. The animals with the coffee polyphenols were totally resistant to the weight gain associated uh, with this diet. So caffeine adds to it, uh, but the caffeinated forms of, uh, this was through the NHANE study, which I'm not showing today, caffeinated and decaf were, were both good, both better than not having coffee, but uh, the decafs were less good than the uh, caffeinated forms. So caffeine is, is part of the trick, but not the whole thing. Interestingly, uh, in the NHANE study, which is the tens of thousands of patients followed for decades, not really patients, just uh, people in the United States, Sodas of any kind, which can have as much coffee uh, and much caffeine as coffee does, seem to have no beneficial effect whatsoever. So caffeine on its own doesn't seem to be helpful. And interestingly, if you uh, use the freeze-dried coffees, that Folgers stuff that you can just pour out with a spoon, no benefit. Uh, the, the, the process of creating the freeze-dried coffee somehow destroys the, the polyphenol. So it's drip-filtered, uh, caffeinated coffee is the best, three eight-ounce cups per day seems to be about the sweet spot. An easy thing to tell patients to do is almost free. How bad is Depends on how much, yeah. That's a good question, yeah. I couldn't drink it without. Your coffee's an interesting science. That you, you see things, now this has become something that we need to know. Uh, things like Robusta and Arabica. So Robusta is the more bitter uh, taste of the stronger coffee. It really just reflects the amount of caffeine in the coffee. So a Robusta coffee has got more caffeine. It's a more bitter taste. So someone who's just starting out, tell them to go look for an Arabica, which is going to be less caffeinated uh, and a much more palatable taste for, for most people. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This interested me because in, the, uh, in this uh, paper published in uh, Journal of Endocrinology, uh, these are the enzymes that turn on. The, there was a, an interest into why does the liver not get fat? Why are these animals not getting the weight gain that the animals that didn't get the coffee polyphenols get? All of the uh, enzymes that are associated with uh, de novo lipogenesis are downregulated by these coffee polyphenols. So it's not just an association now. It's, it's a really good uh, science uh, behind it, too. A little bit late to the game, the New England Journal did a study, published a study, a few patients in it, 600 and something thousand, studied for a few years, 
just five million follow-up years. Not only is it good for the liver, all-cause mortality declines on average by around 12%. So drinking three cups of coffee per day, you have a 12% decreased risk of mortality uh, overall. Buried in here was uh, motor vehicle accident deaths were also less. The reason? You're more awake. You're sort of more alert uh, as a driver. And probably holding your coffee and the cell phone at the same time, almost <laughs> impossible for, for most people. Yeah, yeah. So this is just the overall hazards ratio adjusted for everything, about 0.88 hazards ratio for mortality. So I routinely tell our patients to, uh, to drink coffee who have, uh, have liver disease. Patients often want to know what their outlook is. They've been diagnosed with uh, cirrhosis. What's their likelihood of being alive in five, 10 years? And it, the answer is it depends. Uh, this is for, this is an average. So you're not telling a patient they're gonna live for six months, 12 months. This is if you have 100 patients, this is how long the average uh, lifespan will be. So compensated cirrhosis, none of those things we talked about, ascites, encephalopathy, nine to 12 years average. If you have any of the uh, definitions for decompensation, only a two-year uh, average uh, survival. If you have something like hepatopulmonary syndrome, which is really hypoxemia related to shunting that goes on uh, in the lung base, 10-month uh, survival. If you have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, so a lot of ID people here, just one episode of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, average life expectancy is nine months. And if you have hepatorenal syndrome, uh, less than six weeks. So these are reasons to think about getting your patient assessed in a liver transplant center. Where people actually die from, if you look at all those things, almost none of them are lethal in and of themselves. I'm going to say 90% of the deaths, even among variceal bleeders that I see on the hospital service, what they actually end up dying from is infections. It's almost always infections. At Mayo Clinic, we drove our, our wait list for liver transplant uh, death rate to 4%, by far the lowest in the country. We cut it in half, it intermounted by doing the same thing, which is as soon as a patient with any complication of liver disease turns up on the floor, we stop what we're doing, we send a fellow to go see them, and after a quick uh, history, physical, they get blood cultures, and they give them ceftriaxone uh, or some other appropriate uh, antibiotic and albumin. And that's, I think that's the most important thing that you can do to improve the uh, survival of patients with liver disease is having a low threshold for administering antibodies. Mike probably hates to hear me say that, but it's, I think it's effective because that's what they die from. And the, the, the road from uh, some abdominal pain and ascites or variceal bleeding to, to death is a very short one uh, when you have these complications. So when to refer uh, a patient to a transplant center? Not everyone with cirrhosis uh, should go. Uh, and this is probably the best guide that we have. And this is MELD score and then survival with and without uh, a transplant. So the mortality rate per uh, 100 patients at a MELD score of 15, it's about, there's a slight advantage to transplantation. The yellow bar is a bit higher than the, green, uh, than the blue bar. Uh, and the higher, this is the uh, mortality uh, on the wait list, and the yellow is with transplantation. So there's a benefit begins to appear at 15. Many third-party payers won't allow a patient to be evaluated or listed until the MELD score gets to 15. So certainly when you have a patient with a MELD score of 15, and the MELD calculator is available online through the United Network for Organ Sharing, through Mayo Clinic, uh, it's very easy. If you just put in MELD calculator, it comes up. It's not hard to find. You just need uh, bilirubin, uh, prothrombin time, and creatinine. 
they also ask for sodium and oxygen adds to productivity. But if any of those things give you a number greater than 15, for sure those patients to go to a transplant center. And I would say patients maybe even 10 and above just to get plugged into the system is probably a healthy idea. And this is just the hazards ratio for mortality. And it, it goes from being actually a, uh, the hazard ratio is uh, worse. You actually do, you're more likely to die by having a transplant for a MELD score less than 15 by some margin. Now, there are places in the country where you can get a transplant with a MELD score less than 15. Louisiana, Indiana, right next door here, has an average MELD score transplant of around 22. Here in Region 7, uh, it's about 35. So that's a huge difference. Many patients will drive across the border, and they're in a different organ uh, procurement uh, organization, uh, so they have access to organs that, that we just don't uh, here in Illinois. And hopefully will change in the next uh, year or so with uh, some redistricting. Okay, next question. So which of the following vaccines is contraindicated in patients with cirrhosis, MMR, typhoid, uh, oral polio, uh, BCG, or none of the above? Twilight Zone? Yeah. I don't know. Dark Shadow. 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 Uh, so all these vaccines are fine, even the live vaccine, and it's particularly important now to also give uh, the streptococcal vaccine to patients with uh, cirrhosis. I've had two patients die in the last year from streptococcal sepsis uh, with uh, cirrhosis, including an 18-year-old uh, young man. So this is the uh, current set of recommendations. So. For patients with cirrhosis, they should get pneumococcal, influenza, and tetanus vaccines. So go ahead and make sure they get their uh, influenza vaccines too. Uh, they, even though they have large spleens, they're hyposplenic physiologically and at risk for streptococcal uh, sepsis. Do you have any concern with that recommendation, Michael or Charlie? Happy with it? Uh, hepatitis A and B, this is one of the CMS uh, metrics for which they uh, uh, adjust our, our reimbursement for CMS uh, payers, uh, uh, patients. Uh, so you have to test for hepatitis A and B uh, seropositivity and then vaccine uh, ne negative uh, patients. Uh, the risk of inadequate response is associated with disease, so it's very important to check so you get a, a lower frequency of response than somebody without cirrhosis for any of these vaccines. And live attenuated vaccines are absolutely not contraindicated in patients with uh, cirrhosis. And remember, the most common cause of death uh, for people who have complications uh, is, uh, is infectious, and for people overall is cardiovascular, of course. Okay, so another question. A 55-year-old woman uh, with a BMI of 35, so uh, technical uh, class 2 obesity. She has uh, serum cholesterol of 382, LDLs high 298, and she's attempted dieting for three months to get to these numbers. Okay, no improvement. AST is 98, so about twice the upper limit of normal. ALT, about two times the upper limit of normal. Also, ultrasound uh, shows uh, a bit of... Uh, uh, fat in the liver, but features consistent with cirrhosis. She's well compensated. Her primary care doctor wants to put her on statins. She meets every criteria for statins if you didn't have cirrhosis. So what would be the uh, correct recommendation or action in this patient? Avoid statins uh, altogether because you're worried about hepatotoxicity. Uh, start statins, but monitor the transaminases every week for six weeks. Maybe initiate the statins and monitor every two weeks and then six weeks, three months, and six months. 
initiate the statins, don't worry about the liver, uh, just watch for myalgias and muscle weakness, and statins if the liver biopsy uh, does not show cirrhosis. Everyone went for this, which is interesting. The, uh, the correct answer, unbelievably, is actually uh, four. So forget about the transaminases. Go ahead and give the drugs and just watch for myalgias. Cowboys. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I was shocked by this, uh, but the data, as I'm about to show, actually support it. So I, I've become a believer. Uh, and the good news is, uh, the, the whole reason we know this, are uh, in the phase three uh, statin studies, of course, a lot of people have fatty liver. So they were able to go back and look at the frequency. And this is just one of all these statin studies show the same thing. This is just the, one of the best examples. This was pravastatin phase three, 160 patients in the pravastatin arm, 160 in the placebo arm. And the frequency of transaminase elevations was 7.5% in the pravastatin arm, uh, twice that pretty much in the placebo arm. In the world, there is not one compelling case of statin-associated liver failure. It's pretty unusual. If anything, people do better on statins. In response to this, the labels state what uh, we just said. And this is the uh, overall recommendation, uh, which is the presence of chronic liver disease in child's acerosis should not be considered a contraindication. And they recommend no transaminase monitoring. If you look at transaminase for some other reason, go ahead. But you don't have to do it because the patients are receiving uh, statins. And the same is true for fatty liver disease. And the most common reason to die if you have liver disease overall is cardiovascular. So that's just very important. One of the best things you can do for your patients in clinic is to make sure if they need statins that they're on them. One of the interesting things about treating hep C is there's an emerging body of literature that lipids get worse when you cure hep C uh, for a number of reasons, particularly with genotype 3. Genotype 3 patients get a dyslipidemia upon SVR. So now we're recommending to check lipid panel following SVR and to consider statins uh, if, that's, uh, if that's appropriate. Other important things, a lot of pain in patients with uh, hepatitis C. Uh, acetaminophen's fine, up to two grams per day, which is four extra strength tablets. Avoid NSAIDs. Everyone with cirrhosis has got uh, an arteriovascularly shut down or clamped uh, kidney. Uh, NSAIDs make this worse, uh, make ascites worse, et cetera, as well. If you have to choose an antibiotic uh, with, with all the considerations of uh, liver injury, uh, fluoroquinolones and cephalosporins are great. Oral hypoglycemic agents uh, are fine in compensated uh, cirrhosis. Nutrition. Uh, many patients uh, with uh, more advanced liver disease are malnourished. They lose uh, muscle and fat mass. When each of us went to bed last night and we woke up this morning, uh, we would have maybe a quarter of our calories coming from fat and from protein. For a patient with liver disease, it's about 75% of calories come from fat and muscle after an overnight fast. We would have to not eat for three days to be burning up as much fat and muscle tissue. So this accelerated starvation is why patients become emaciated with uh, cirrhosis. You can abrogate that just by giving six meals per day. So before the patient goes to bed, tell them to have milk and a cookie, something like this, almost a perfect mix for a patient with liver disease is uh, whole milk uh, and something else like a cookie. Bedtime snacks are important, and these fat-soluble vitamins are almost always deficient in patients with advanced liver disease. Zinc in a patient with hep C and some alcohol intake, almost 100% prevalence of uh, zinc deficiency. 
Another common question for patients, can they take sildenafil? Erectile dysfunction is very common in patients with cirrhosis. Uh, testosterone levels fall, sex, binding, uh, sex hormone binding proteins fall also. It's actually been studied, sildenafil is safe in patients with uh, cirrhosis. So in summary, the most important points are stage disease for people with cirrhosis. Do that evaluation to figure out if they have a big one stage. For the likelihood of cirrhosis in patients with liver disease, don't forget the six-monthly screening for HCC. Council for General Health, you know, the coffee that we talked about, the BMI, moderate alcohol consumption, don't smoke. Uh, vaccinate uh, aggressively and a standard approach to preventing uh, and uh, treating uh, cardiovascular disease. You don't have to avoid, we talked about statins, the same is true for ACE inhibitors also. And if a male score is greater than or equal to 15, uh, refer to one of the uh, great transplant centers uh, available to you. And screening for varices, just a reminder, uh, if you see large varices, uh, beta block and or uh, endoscopic ligation, screen again in one to two years if you have small varices, two to three years larger varices, six months for HCC, uh, stop alcohol, vaccines, and lifestyle changes. And that note, I'll conclude. I thank you for what was a long presentation. Any, any questions?